Thanks for joining us for episode 44 of Practically Ranching. I'm Matt Perrier. Like always, Practically Ranching is made possible by Dale Banks Angus. Make plans to attend our annual bull sale Saturday, November 18th, northwest of Eureka, Kansas. You can go to dalebanks.com for more information or to request a catalog. As we have said before, this podcast's name has a couple different meanings. Some episodes may surround a topic or a guest that uh, offers an application that can be practically applied at the ranch level. Other times, we're a little more philosophical in nature, i.e. we're not quite ranching, we're practically ranching. This episode is likely the latter. Joe Goggins is a practical cattleman, and he manages many different businesses throughout the cattle industry, but we're not going to cover many of those tactical, practical management types of pieces in Joe's life today. This discussion is about the broader industry, and it's one that is starting here and needs to continue, in my opinion. Now, if you would have told me a couple years back that Joe Goggins and I would be on a podcast together, I would have gotten quite a chuckle, and he probably would have too. If you would have told me that we were going to do two within a year, I would have laughed. And if you would have told me that both of them were going to be very civil, almost agreeable types of discussions, I probably would have fallen on the floor laughing. I had worked at Bull Sailor 2 with Joe 20 years ago when I worked for the Angus Association, but I never really got a chance to visit with him until about a year ago at the National Angus Convention. It was in Salt Lake City, and we got to serve on a panel discussion there at the convention and then a podcast that was immediately following and I included actually a, a link to that Angus podcast in the show notes today. But it was there in Salt Lake when I realized that this guy who I thought saw the industry from a totally different viewpoint than I shared a lot more in common than I realized. Joe and I hadn't talked again since we were together there last November, but I thought it was worth visiting on this podcast again. He's now on the board of the Livestock Marketing Association. And over the last year or so, LMA has focused on the, the change that we're seeing within the cow-calf and yearling stalker producer segment and what the future holds for this structure of what I would call grass-type folks in our industry. And we're going to cover that a lot here today. Like I mentioned, Joe's family and mine have viewed some of the big lightning rod type issues within the beef industry through different lenses over the last 30 years. Very different lenses. And because of this, we, and quite often the organizations with whom we've been involved, haven't discussed many of the common ground issues that we have, largely because we weren't even in the same room at the same convention. Joe believes, and I do too, that it's high time that we figure out a way to unify. Now, did we find the ideal solution for this on this podcast? Not really, but at least we talked about it. 
which in my opinion is a huge step in the right direction. I think conversations like this one were the main impetus for Practically Ranching 18 months ago when we created it. These types of discussions aren't easy, and sometimes they're not very concrete. But as Joe says, they're conversations that we have to have. So enjoy this conversation with Joe Goggins, and thanks again for listening to Practically Ranching. Why don't you say something a little bit more? I'll test our audio levels, and then we'll be rolling. One, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, test one, two. You act like you've tested a microphone before there, Colonel Goggins. How many thousands of times would you have done this? Oh, quite a few. Quite a few. <laughs> well, how many podcasts have you done? Not very many. Okay. No. That's the only podcast I've ever done is the one you and I did at the convention. Last oh, okay. Year. Yeah. The only Angus. one I've ever sat in on. Yep. yep. That one was fun. So we'll try to make this one equally so. You said that your your techie son-in-law helped get you set up here on your AirPods yeah. and everything else. Is this Corey? Yes. I'm glad that a native Kansan could come and help you Montanans out. Yeah, well, he helps us a lot in that respect, but I'm not well, going to brag on him too much, especially because he's not standing here anymore. But, <laughs> that's yeah. good. Any of our Kansas State football fans uh, that would have been paying attention 15 years ago may have known him as our wide receiver or was on the team at least as a wide receiver, yeah, Corey yeah. Schultz. And I know you've got a great story about how he and Kayleen met, but I'll, I'll let yeah. you tell that yeah. one maybe to friends uh, off the air. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's good. That's good. Well, glad that we could export or you import a Kansan into Montana and help you out. Yeah. I always tell him you, you, you don't get to pick your son-in-laws. You just get them. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you learn that from your father when Roger Jacobs came into yeah. the mix? Or? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, been said more than once. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, you've got quite a family there, and whether they're blood relatives or married into it, it's it's a great story. And I know so many in the beef industry know somebody within your family. If if not you, I'm sure know the name plenty. So appreciate you, you being on here today. You had asked there right before I hit record how the weather was, and it's hot, Joe. I don't know if the cold front is come down through you yet i see you've got a sweatshirt or sweater on so maybe it has but yeah we're going to be in the 90s today and tomorrow and then they're talking about highs of upper 60s or 70s by this thursday friday saturday so it'll change here pretty quick it did we got to feel a fall up here and it's nice it's yeah we've had in fact we've had some dustings of snow up on some of these mountain deals and oh it's it's got the feel of fall it needs to have the feel of all yeah it's time it's time especially um when we're 90 some degrees in the in October it's a little much and as you know all too well it we've got what you all had there a year to two or three years ago in terms of lack of rainfall and everything else uh, it'll change mm-hmm. it'll change that's right so i know that probably everybody listening to this podcast knows the goggins name and knows your involvement at some level within the industry Give us a feel, all the different um, segments and, and sectors of the beef industry that, that you're involved in and just kind of your street cred to let us know um, where you're coming from on a daily basis and the points that you touch. Yeah, well, we kind of grew up in the uh, r- registered Angus business uh, with the Vermilion Ranch, but along with that, 
uh, have also grown up in the livestock auction market business and I grew up around bull segments from the, well, your first memory. And so we, no, we, we were very involved within the seed stock industry. Uh, we, our family breeds a couple thousand registered Angus cows every year. Uh, we have fall and spring, and then uh, we market about 12 to 1400 bulls every year. Uh, we background a lot of cattle. Uh, we probably background anywhere from 25 to 40,000 head of calves each and every year. We develop about 10,000 replacement heifer calves uh, for four replacement heifers uh, each and every year. And uh, along with that, as the years develop and kind of grew into the video marketing business, we do own our family owns that Northern Livestock Video Auction. And uh, uh, so, so we, uh, we help market a lot of calves, a lot of yearlings, a lot of uh, this and that on a daily basis. And uh, we, we've been very blessed to be very diversified within this industry and, and I kind of see it from all angles about every day. That's for sure. And, and that's a nice thing when you climb on an auction block and, and start talking to commercial cow calf producers or registered Angus producers or whoever it may be. Anybody that has been to one of your sales knows that you know a little something about all pieces of the industry and, and when there is real value. And I remember, a, gosh, it's been about two years ago right now, because just before you and I got on, I was working on our bull sale catalog, putting it together, and we took pictures this morning, and you're a week behind me. I think you're the Saturday uh -huh. after Thanksgiving, right? We're the Saturday right. before, so yep. um, you know the drill, but I was working on that catalog two years ago, and I happened to turn on the internet or the TV or something, and Sitzes were having their female sale, mm -hmm. and you were just starting your pre-sale comments and you mentioned there and of course we all know what the fall of 21 was like in terms of prices and you all were in the throes of drought and, and it was starting I think down here and we didn't even realize it yet but you used the term fireworks which I've heard you use before and, and since then but you said folks we're going to sell cattle in the next couple of years higher than we ever and I think you stopped prior to saying we ever have, but you said we ever have imagined. And so I'm right in the midst of putting our catalog together. I still needed to write the infamous pre-sale letter that's inside that mm -hmm. I always fret and stew over, and I'm not sure that anybody ever reads. And I put that. And I didn't, I didn't quote you because I didn't want to throw you under the bus in case the wheels fell off and it didn't do what <laughs> you thought and what I thought and what really anybody that was paying attention thought from a supply standpoint. But I put that in there and I just said a well-known, I think livestock marketer is what I called you or something. And I had a customer, actually he's not a customer, he's a friend of ours, call me on. And this gentleman and I don't necessarily always see the industry from the same way. We may not belong to the same industry organizations, but he said, I want to know just who thought we were going to sell cattle in the next year or two higher than we ever thought we ever thought possible or ever imagined, whatever it was you said. And I said, Joe Goggins. And there was just silence on the other lot. <laughs> and he said, well, I guess we'll see. And I'm sure he was thinking I was going to say cattle facts or somebody with certified Angus beef or NCBA or whomever it was. Yeah. And once he heard the source, he thought, well, maybe it's possible. So yeah, he, yeah. he trusted you. And guess what? Uh, we have. Um, it's, it's been strong. It's been good and, and um, probably long overdue. I, uh, I, I think it's, I think we all kind of had the feeling it was going to get awful good. And, and to be real honest, this thing got good really fast. It, it got, it got a lot better than I thought it would 
quicker. I mean, it's, I still think if we can keep the government out of some things and keep a few of these black swan event things from happening, uh, I, I still honestly think uh, our best days are ahead of us. I, I mean, I still think next year is the year probably or the following, especially on these bread cattle. And, uh, but it, we do not see uh, this cow herd building. It, uh, when you look at these cow, the calculate receipts and, and the amount of these cows coming to town still, it's, it's remarkable to me that we aren't in a herd rebuild yet. And, and I think it'll be as a lot slower rebuild than we've seen in years past, just a lot due just to input costs. And uh, when you look at interest, when you look at... Uh, uh, the cost of fertilizer, the cost of these balers, the cost of these swathers, just the cost of doing business, keep one of these ranches running. I just, I honestly think the rebuild on this cow herd this time will be quite a bit slower than we've seen before. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that a prolonged drought or maybe that drought moving from the north to the south, southeast, um, like it has, I think that has an effect too. But we hearken back to 20, late 2013, 2014, when we saw a similar run-up in prices and, and the first time that a lot of us had ever seen anything like that, or first time any of us had, had seen $3 calves and some of these things. And at that time, as you said, our inputs weren't quite what they are today. And I think a lot of farmers and ranchers would walk away from the livestock market or the sale barn or the stockyards or the pack and plant or wherever they'd gotten paid and almost feel guilty for selling cattle as high as what we did. Fast forward to today and a lot of folks are going, yeah, it's really good, but doggone it, it needed to be good. You know, there's bills to pay. There's a lot of stuff yeah. that, that is looming out there that um, it, it needed to be this strong. And as a result, yeah, we're not seeing people, not only are we not seeing them expand, but I've even heard of a lot of folks in the last year or so who knew this thing was going to get pretty good, who at the time anyway, and some of them still do, had water, had feed, had hay, whatever the case may be, and still said, you know what? It's not worth it. It's too much work to have cows. I'm going to turn to 90-day yearlings, or I'm going to terminate the last little bit of ground that I can farm and, and we're going to plant beans and corn. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other competitive sources of income and ownership and whatever the case may be besides cattle. And it used to be that people didn't even think about it. You know, there's just going to be lean times. We're going to get through them. And I think that we as an industry and participants within our industry may be I don't know if we've got a sharper pencil, if we're just lazier. I don't know what the case may be, but I think it takes more to start herd rebuilds and heifer retention and things like this than it used to. Do you see that? No, I definitely see it. And it, I spoke to a group of cattlemen here the other night and I said, you know, we're all about half giddy right now with the way the market is. We're all very, very pleased. And it's better than all of us thought it could be. But I, I really think the worst thing we can do as an industry right now is, is apologize for working for these cattle because uh, uh, it's just a good thing we are because there'd be a lot less of us come next spring, this fall, if these cattle weren't bringing this right now. And it, and I see, and I think that's why, as you say, we haven't seen a rebuild. We, we don't feel the rebuild. It, it takes more than, it's just, it's a tough way to make a living right now. And and to be honest, I, I sit on the board of the Livestock Marketing Association and those of us that are livestock auction market owners here in the United States, are, we're really concerned about it. 
and uh, it, it's it's a, it's just the top of our priority list right now as far as things to uh, to uh, look at because uh, you look at the amount of producers, you look at the amount of producers that we're losing out of these auction markets, and I don't care if it's in your part of the world, if it's on the east coast, the south the West or up in our part of the world, uh, you talk to an auction market owner anywhere in, in any region of the United States right now, and we're losing producers and we're losing them pretty fast. And uh, I just look at our own uh, situation here last fall in our, uh, we have two big stockhouse sales, the Blue Ribbon and the Northland stockhouse sales we have in Billings. One week in the December, we'll sell somewhere between 10 and 15,000 cows, bred females each, each year and have for a lot of years. And never once in those, all of those years, since I was a young kid till now, do I ever remember in that week of selling stock cows that we'd have more than three to four at the most complete and total dispersals. And last fall we had 15 and we'd have, and we've had 10 cents and we've got more on the books for this fall than we had last fall. And the market's this good, but these people are aging out. They see a time, uh, a pretty good exit right now. And, uh, uh, I think, uh, I, I just think it's something that, that uh, all of us within this industry need to, to start a conversation about and look at and why are we losing these people? And I think it's plain and simple. There's just not enough consistent margin over a 10 to 20 year time frame. There's not enough consistent margin in this game. You look at the amount of thousands and thousands of acres that we continue to lose out of livestock production, whether it be beef or lamb to things like uh, uh, urban development, to things like recreation, to things like uh, fish, wildlife, and park conservation easement type deals, American Prairie Reserve type situations. But, but we're losing land and we're losing lots of it. And I just, I, that's no good for an auction market owner. That's no good for anybody that owns a, a business along Main Street America. That's no good for breed associations. That's no good for, there's a lot of things that, that we have to have producers and we have to have these mid-range and smaller producers if we're going to keep rural America uh, thriving and, and alive. Yeah, and it's those mid-range and smaller producers that, at least in this region, it sounds like up your way as well, are, are the ones. We all worry about consolidation at the packer processor level or at the retail level or even at the feed yard level sometimes. The consolidation that I think we're in the midst of at the commercial cow-calf level is... We've never seen it in the past. I, I honestly believe that we're going to see more consolidation in this turn of the cattle cycle at the cow-calf level uh, than we ever have. And I guess now I've probably led you already, but those extra 10 or 15 cow dispersals that you saw last fall and that are coming on the books for this, this fall and winter, what's that land doing going into the future? Do you know? Are those folks yeah. docker cattle or what? I think there's a little bit of both. There's some of these guys that have nobody to, uh, some of this land is selling. Some of it's going into situations like American Prairie Reserve, at least in our part of the world. A lot of this land, uh, uh, they're aged out, they're tired of calving, and they're going to maybe run yearlings. Uh, and, and some of it is this, they're selling it and it's going into uh, uh, a lot of this land that up here on these dispersions is going into a uh, 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 big money corporate type situations where they turn it into a recreation hunting type deal. And, and 
might keep it in a little bit of production, but nothing like it's capable of. And you lose all that tax base. You lose all that. Uh, we, we just lose a lot of land out of food production. I, I think all of us have got, we'd better start educating these policymakers back there in D.C. The importance of food, the importance of, of preserving our food independence. And one way we're going to do that is, is we've got to keep this land in food production. We've got to incentivize people into leaving this land in food production, whether it be, uh, especially livestock production is in my mind as far as beef and lamb. And I think there's ways of doing that. I think there's ways uh, of incentivizing people through tax credits and, and tax breaks and, and so forth going forward. But it, I, I really think, uh, uh, to me, the days of, of taking on the Packers, the, the days of, of taking on these big corporate feeders and and, and, tr and thinking we're going to get some fairness in this and that at that level. For those of us that are independent people, uh, I, I think it's a loser. I think it, uh, I look back at our situation and uh, I mean, my father, uh, he, he took that fight on for his pretty much his whole adult life. I, I've took it on for most of my adult life. And I'll be honest, man, I'm tired of losing. Uh, in the situation we're in now, we need them just as bad as they need us. And why... I, I think we as an industry, I don't care if it's uh, NCBA, uh, RCAF, U.S. Cattlemen, Farm Bureau, Farmers Union. I don't care what industry group you belong to, but we had better unify. We had better come up with some things that we can agree upon that'll, that will increase margin and, and incentivize these young people into wanting to do this. And we better come up with some ideas and try to incentivize these people into leaving this land and livestock production. If we don't do that, if, if we can't come together as an industry, all these groups and unify around those two ideas in my mind, then we're going to lose and we're going to lose bad. And I'm really afraid we could lose our food independence in this country. And uh, if we lose our food independence in this country, we're no longer a superpower. And I think it's of dire straits that we come together as an industry. I know uh, I'm not against people keeping people accountable and different groups keeping different groups accountable, but in my mind, this isn't the time for that. This is the time to unify. We have got to come together as an industry and have a conversation about how can we increase margin on a consistent basis? How can we incentivize these young people into uh, a wanting to uh, not only want to do this, but be able to do this? Along with that, how do we incentivize people into leaving their land in, uh, in livestock production? Well, that unification is, is important. It's critical. I mean, depending on whose data you read, we're Ag producers, farmers, ranchers, everybody are somewhere between one and a half and two percent of the entire population of the U.S., and we feed the other ninety-eight or ninety-nine plus everybody across the world that we export to, and so we're already in the vast minority. When we segment ourselves because of a couple marketing issues or whatever the case may be, um, yeah, it just fractures us even more, and 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 that's as critical as that is. You used the independent word, and that is a blessing and a curse amongst livestock producers. We are mm -hmm. fiercely independent. All you have to do is watch Yellowstone or read the yeah. WLJ or anybody else to find out whether it's fiction or nonfiction. The truth is we pride ourselves on that independence. And so that right there is part of an issue going forth when we start talking about unifying around even a two or three issues that we think should be fairly innocuous and fairly agreeable amongst us all. There's always somebody that says, oh no, no, I don't, I don't at all see eye to eye on that. And, and, 
and it's tough. It, it it makes it extremely difficult as we try to pull those organizations to. And there's territorial battles. I mean, I'll, full disclosure, you know, I grew up in Kansas in a very market-driven, value-based household. And mm-hmm. our belief was that things like grid marketing and, you know, um, producer ownership of packer yeah. processors and some of these kind of out there thoughts was actually a good thing of, uh, and I, I believe that it has been now we've, if we get time here on the podcast, we'll talk a little more. I've talked about it in two or three podcasts since we started over the last year and a half, but you know, that has caused some issues too. uh, price discovery of fed cattle and things like that being one of them. But any, any time we get a group of producers together, there's going to be two main things that we talk about the weather and the markets. And right now, there are very few people who are going to throw a rock and say, boy, this, this market is broke. We got we to fix this because we're, you know, $1.80-ish fed cattle knocking on the door, I think, at some point of $2 per pound cattle at a, out of the feed yards. There's a lot of people that are nodding their heads saying, yeah, this market is exactly like it should be. This is the time to talk about what do we need to fix in terms of price discovery, in terms of, um, you know, incentives to keep people farming and ranching the land, but nobody wants to talk about it because, you know, nobody's, nobody's, uh, looking for a reason to blame somebody. So it, I don't know how we start those conversations. I know you've been part of several of them and maybe you've got some ideas, not just how we start the conversations, but what are some fixes? You've been kind of on a listening tour with LMA and, over the last year or so, what, what do you see yeah, yeah, a path forward? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the LMA and it's something that I think, uh, those of us that were involved with it are so proud that, that, that we were a part of it was a few years ago, we had the uh, industry roundtable meeting with all of the different industry groups. And, uh, but it was, not, uh, it was the next thing to impossible to get that thing pulled off, get everybody in the same room. And, uh, we had it with, the. Uh, uh, basically there are four different members of, of each organization. No staff was involved. And just got in there and had a conversation. And there were a lot of things come out of that meeting uh, that, that, that were very productive. I mean, the contract library basically come out of that meeting. Uh, several of these other ideas that we've got moved through legislatively uh, uh, here within the last year came out of that roundtable meeting. And it, it's going to, we were wanting to have another one. I say, we, the LMA, it, it looks to me like it's going to be rather difficult to get that thing pulled off again. It just, there's just a lot of diversity and a lot of, uh, uh, divisiveness between these organizations. And it, we, we got talking amongst ourselves uh, uh, within our board of the LMA and and how do we unify? Uh, we, we so believe the importance of this uh, idea of unification and b- making these grassroots people become proactive and, and start a conversation themselves and not always count on these staffs to go do it of these different organizations and these different boards and this and that. Uh, this is a situation where we as producers we, those of us that have a lot of skin in the game, uh, it's time to become proactive. I know we get busy at home and we get uh, uh, doing things and we get thinking somebody else is going to do it for us. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's nobody going to do it for us. We, we had better come together and become proactive. But I, uh, the, the two words that I really like to use in this whole idea is the idea of unification and the idea of becoming proactive. And uh, uh, we as an organization, we, we got proactive. We had five uh focus group meetings, uh, that we had, uh, one in Montgomery, Alabama, one, I believe you were a part of that. We were so glad you were uh, there in uh, Kansas. 
We had another one in Missouri. We had one in uh, one in Billings, Montana, and we held two same day uh, in uh, California. Uh, these different auction market owners are at different regions, invited uh, producers, 15, some very, very uh, uh, successful. Some were uh, uh, younger people that were probably struggling, but uh, we're, we're in uh, uh, these people's mind that they were forward thinking, uh, such as you. We're so glad you could make it to that deal and, and have your input. And, and I'd like your perspective of, the, uh, of what you thought of that meeting. But it, uh, we got some real valuable information. And, and uh, uh, basically, our, at least the meetings I at, uh, attended, the one in Billings and the ones in California, uh, basically, it was just a conversation as how can we create? How can we create some incentive for young people to want to be able to do this? How can we create some incentive for people to leave this land in livestock production? How do we preserve the guy that has from 500 cows to 20 cows and give them incentive to do this? And some of the ideas we got out of that, uh, when you really look at all of the different information we got out of each meeting was, I think some of the fixes and the conversations we need to have are around the idea of this death tax and, and the estate planning and the estate tax as far as we're, right now, we're in a time where a lot of us within agriculture are not affected by the inheritance tax because you got a $13.5 million exemption per person uh, for a couple. So you've got near $26 million worth of exemption. That's a, that's a good high ceiling. Uh, in 2025, that death ceiling is going to uh, sunset out. And it looks to me like it could go down to maybe $2.5 million per person. $5 million is what they want. And, and I can, you can feel it. They want it less than that. We get that deal down where it's at five, six million between the two couples. Then that involves a whole bunch of people. That'll wipe out some of these producers within the uh, production agriculture. And it'll be no good for rural America. It'll be no good for any of us. And uh, uh, those are some things we need to make sure we, we, we keep our the eye on the ball there. And uh, uh, in, in my mind, I think uh, from these meetings, uh, if, you, if you transfer your land to the next generation, and that generation agrees to leave that land in livestock production for say 20 years, then they'd have, they'd, in my mind, we should have no inheritance tax for that kind of a situation, especially if, if uh, a certain percentage of your family income, gross annual income comes from production agriculture, say 70% or so of your gross annual income comes from production agriculture and you qualify for a setting like this and you'd agree to leave that land as a young person inheriting it in uh, livestock production then you shouldn't have to pay any inheritance tax. Say you're uh, up in your years and you have nobody to transfer that land to within your, and make it generational and you basically decide to sell that land. Well, if you sell that land to uh, somebody and they decide same kind of a deal, sign off on the same kind of a scenario, we'll leave this land in livestock production. Well, then they get a huge tax breaks for the years to come. And the seller themselves, Maybe they don't have to pay any capital gains tax or something. Give them an incentive to where they don't have to sell it at a recreational type value and, and keep this land in, in production agriculture. I, I just, I think those are some things that, uh, that I think from all of us within this industry, and I mean all of us, I mean from the grassroots cow-calf man, yearling operator, to the feeder, to the packer. I think we can all get on the same team on, on conversations like this and, and, and unify and try to get some real movement and, and create some, some stability and some incentive for these young people to stay in this. Because uh, at the end of the day, I think it's real obvious. We as cow-calf people, we as Seerland people, we need that corporate feeder and, and packer just as bad as they need us. And 
These are, th- th- this is a situation where I think we can get on the same team. I mean, I think if we can prove to these uh, folks up, up at the higher end of the food chain here, the packer, the, the corporate feeder, if we can prove to them that we're not going to throw darts at them on this one, we're not going to sue you on this one. We need your, we need your help. And, and uh, uh, we need to unify. I, I just, I, I, I so hope that uh, we as an industry can come together on a few ideas like this to, uh, uh, move forward with and incentivize people into wanting to stay in uh, protein production. Yeah, I would I would think that the whole death tax issue would be pretty agreeable amongst everybody that you've talked with in the production segment. And, and it, I haven't heard anybody that, that wouldn't be in favor of doing something on that. And hopefully, yeah, I mean, it, it needs to be addressed. Um, that goes back to that 2% versus 98%. Uh, I just had a podcast two or three back with Tucker Stewart, who is a staffer for our Kansas senator there in D.C. And and he said that's every time we talk about a rural issue versus an urban one, we don't have the votes. And so we have to make sure that we educate and we talk to those urban legislators and and others. uh, And and like you said, get our industries together and behind us on something like that, that that seems like a pretty Uh, easy decision, I would think, but it not always is. You, you bring up the word educate, and I think of it every day. We had a meeting in California, a focus group meeting over right. the same topic. And the second meeting we had that day, it only involved eight or 10 producers that were there. Two of those producers uh, were rather large dairymen. And uh, one of them was, was one of the lead lobbyists for the dairy industry uh, out of California for in D.C. And we couldn't get them off topic. They didn't want to talk about anything but this one thing. And it was how we as the beef industry tell our story. And uh, he, uh, he just wouldn't get off topic. He says, for the last 70 years, he says, the beef industry has done an absolute horrible job of telling their story, of educating these policymakers on why they deserve some of these perks. He says, you really, he says, in my mind, you don't need to educate the people within your industry, they know. He says, the people you need to educate, number one, is you got to go back to DC and educate these people that make policy for you. And you have to educate them and convince them on why you deserve some of these perks, why you deserve some of these uh, different kinds of policy to make your thing right. But he says, right now, the beef industry goes back to DC and you walk into these offices and you have 32 different ass. He says, by the end of the deal, they don't know which direction to go. And I think he's really right. I, I, I've thought about it every day since we've, we've been there. I mean, to get some of these things that we're going to uh, want to get through and, and become proactive is, uh, I think that's the importance of this idea of unification is to go back there with one voice, with one, one ass, two ass, and, and educate these people on the importance of, of preserving this food independence in this country. So a million dollar question, no billion dollar question. Um, it's sure more than that two and a half million dollar level that we just talked about. How do you do it? Does the Livestock Marketing Association want to be the organization of the beef industry going forth? Who, who, who carries this message? I think the, our idea, I say our, the LMA's idea. And I think it's a, it's a, this has got to be a grassroots movement. This has got to, most all of this policy, the best policy that, that finally turns into law is policy that comes, that originates from the bottom up. It's yeah. got to start at these grassroots local uh, uh, industry group meetings 
They've got to go to their state uh, affiliates. They've got to go to their state uh, conventions, create some uh, policy at that level, go to the national level. I don't care if it's at the Farm Bureau, Farmers Union, NCBA, RCAF, whatever, U.S. Cattlemen, whatever that is. But the smaller state affiliates have got to go to these national conventions, unify as a group, and, and make this number one on, on their ass list. And I guess our hope is we put out a we put out an, a one page letter that 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 we sent to all of our auction market owners in in our membership and and LMA represents about eight hundred and some uh, member market businesses here in the United States and Canada. And I know uh, basically it, it's it's just explaining what you and I have just talked about on these focus groups and 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 the idea of taking on these tax issues uh, and the inheritance tax and. And somehow this is where a lot of people will get their ears up and say that, uh, but one of the things that we did get out of this, uh, those focus groups as well is uh, there was a, several regions that, that, that really see the need to try to get this land that we use for, uh, whether it be grassland, whether it be the land that we use to grow roughage, somehow we got to get on an equal plane surface. We got to get on a fair plane surface to where we can compete for this ground that, that, that grows roughage. I mean, you look at these grain growers right now, they can afford to give three to $500 an acre on a cash lease. Those of us uh, in the uh, rough, uh, the protein business, the cattle business, when if we go to try to rent that same piece of ground to grow some hay, grow some silage, just a roughage, we can afford to give maybe 50 to $100 an acre. Somehow, we as we as livestock people have got to get on an equal playing field, a fair playing field, uh, with these folks to compete for that ground to grow roughage. And I don't know if that's government intervention. I don't know if that's. Uh, I I really don't know what it is. But somehow, some way, we've got to get on an equal playing field to where we can compete to grow this roughage on an equal plane. Uh, I mean, for some reason, and I don't know what it is, Matt, but some young kid, twenty five, thirty years old, can go into that bank. And he can go to that officer and he, that, that loan officer and say, I want to buy a green tractor and I want to go rent a quarter or half section of land and I'm going to grow some beans or I'm going to grow some corn. And he gets a pretty easy time of getting it done. That same young man goes into that bank and that loan officer says, I want to buy two loads of bread heifers and I want to lease this piece of grass over here. It's next thing to impossible to get that done. Now, somehow we got to get these young people to where they're on an equal playing surface uh, to be able to compete for that ground and, and have some backup if, if it is that. And I know I don't like it any better than you like it, but somehow, some way, uh, we've got to get on an equal playing field. And these, those are the kinds of things that we have put into these, uh, uh, this one page uh, a letter that we've sent out. And basically, we're asking all of our auction market owners fold them up and send them out in their consigners checks as they send them out. And hopefully those consigners will read this, become proactive, uh, go to their local uh, uh, state affiliate uh, groups, whatever it might be, and and go to those state conventions and create some policy that we can all get around. Because this is a time where these cow-calf states, these, these states that run lots of yearlings, these states that have a lot of grass, we have got to come, we've got to come together and create some policy at that national level to, to promote uh, keeping this cow-calf business thriving because uh, we're seeing so many people leave the mama cow and, and think they're going to just run yearlings. Well, pretty soon, uh, the yearling thing's not going to be near as attractive. I, I don't think there's ever been a time in my lifetime that it's been more attractive to have some bred females around you right now than right now because I just... It's going to, the cow herd rebuild is going to be slower than any of us have ever seen, I think, in this, in this next turn. And it's going to be attractive, but it, 
somehow, some way, we've got to keep these mama cows on the grass. We've got to keep people wanting to do this, but we've got to keep the smaller people doing it. Uh, uh, we, we just continue to, as a nation, it's just not this industry, it's just nation. We just continue to promote this idea of vertical integration. And for some people, it's great. For the big boys, it's great. But for rural America, for, for Main Street rural America, it's a horrible business model. We've, we've got to incentivize uh, the smaller producer to stick around. Yeah, and that's, that's something that you and I talked about on that Angus podcast a year ago now almost. And, and, you know, we talked about vertical integration and maybe the only defense against it is this idea of vertical coordination or cooperation and, and making sure that we pass information and signals and value and everything else back amongst through that so one person or one entity, one segment doesn't own everybody. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on, and I'm not an ag economist, but every ag economist listening to this I know is yelling at the truck radio that markets will work this out. Even you mentioned earlier in this podcast that if we can keep the government out of things, hopefully we can keep this market together. And in other words, I think what you were indicating was don't crash this economy and kill our demand for our product. And this beef market should be pretty strong for quite a long time. Every time I have seen government come in and try to quote unquote fix an issue in the short term, I think they've created more unintended consequences in the long term. And, and that's what I think a lot of folks, again, I use the ag economists and some of these, you know, free market capital driven folks are saying that part of the reason that those folks can go out and lend or borrow that money is because of the crop insurance program. And we can have a three hour podcast on here about whether the crop insurance program, now LRP and, and the drought program and pasture and rainfall forage protection, all these different, what I'd call government programs disguised as insurance or vice versa, whether those are good or bad for producers. I think that is helping level the playing field for folks that are paying attention, but it is what it is. And it is Uncle Sam getting into our business. And I grew up in a time where we were proud at the Kansas Livestock Association meeting or NCA or then NCBA to say that, by gosh, we'll let the farmers farm for the government. We don't want them in our business. Well, guess what? They are right smack dab in our business and probably going to be more so. And, and maybe that's how you level the playing field. I couldn't agree more with you on all of what you've just said. And every time I bring up, the, every time we even talk about as cowboys wanting to uh, get on an equal playing field and how do we do this? And, and it looks to me like you've got to somehow probably get some government intervention. And, I, and every time we talk about it, I want to go home and take a shower. I mean, do none of us like it. I mean, it's, <laughs> do we want it? No. But I, I think, uh, I think those of us that are trying to come up with some real common sense, like ways to, to help the situation, to incentivize people into wanting to do this. I don't think we can just say, uh, just come out and say, we don't want any government intervention. It's a stupid idea. It's a terrible idea. Every time they get involved, it's, you get more unintended consequences than, than the, all of these different things. Yeah, great. I don't want it either. But if you don't want it, then come up with something different. Yeah. And I haven't been able to come up with anything different. And I look up at the clouds every time we talk about things like this, because my father would be so against this early on in his days. 
absolutely didn't want no government intervention. But I do think when you look back at at people in in our folks' uh, generation, our grandparents' generation, that really made something for themselves and their families and left a real legacy, all of those people within that generation adapted to change. They embraced change. They they absolutely were not afraid of change. And those of us in the cattle business right now, especially they got a little gray over their ears, are, are plumb scared to death of talking about any government intervention. We don't want it. We don't. But it's change. And, and somehow, some way, we've got to be able to compete. And I just go back to that same scenario with that same young guy. Why can they, why are they financed so much easier on a green tractor and farm ground than if you want to go buy two loads of bread heifers and buy some gra- or lease some grassland? It's because they got a backup. It's because if it dries out, uh, they're based over a five-year production average or so forth, something like that. I'm not saying we or they are entitled to anything, but they do have a backup. And I guess the way I look at this whole thing, Matt, is if the world, if this country, if our consumers, if our citizenship here have summoned us that, that are on the land and they want us to grow the highest quality, safest food product there is in the world, we're not asking to get rich, but we are asking to to live better than the poverty line. And, and fight this thing. And that's the part I think we all agree on. All of us within this industry can agree on on some tax incentives and, and taking on this inheritance tax and death tax situation. I, I think we're all in agreement on that. The one thing that uh, we uh, will we'll raise some eyebrows and you'll, it'll cause some arguments and it'll cause some conversation. And it's a conversation in my mind we have to have. It's just what we've been talking about here is how do we get on an equal playing field those of us within the livestock business that, that sell grass, that that grow roughage, how do we get on this equal playing field to where we can compete for this acreage and this ground uh, with the farming sector? And I don't think we need an upper hand, but we need to be on a fair playing field. And uh, how, how do we do that? I don't have the answer. I definitely don't. And it's not going to come easily. But I do think, I do agree, that discussion needs to take place. And it has to take place because, as you said, it's not just, I mean, we're picking on the farmers right now, but it's not just the farmer. It's these conservation programs. It's mm-hmm. um, money from outside of agriculture coming in, buying a hunting place and never grazing a ruminant on it again. Uh, putting mm-hmm. it into conservation easements for perpetuity that don't allow grazing. And there is a difference. There are some of them that encourage actually ag production mm-hmm. and grazing. But I don't have the answer. Let's say, let's say that we figure it out. Let's say we develop this program going forth that levels the playing field, however that might be possible, with everybody else that's competing to buy an acre of ground. How do you, and this is going to be, this is going to hit a little close to home. Some would say it hits a little close to home for me too, because my family's probably as guilty, maybe not quite as guilty as yours, but how do you defend the fact that you're running thousands of cows instead of dozens registered cows? You're buying tens of thousands of yearlings instead of a potload. You're selling through several markets plus videos instead of just one. All of those were owned by somebody else that clearly didn't do it as efficiently as you and your family. 
and didn't market those cattle as well as you and your family, or maybe didn't produce bulls as well, or whatever the case may be. That's been capitalism for over 200 years in the United States of America. The market rewards those who do it more efficiently, are willing to take the risks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we as producers that are, whether we're slightly bigger than average or a lot bigger than average, how do we say that that is still okay? That's what built this country and maintain the ability for folks to have that competitive advantage when they do things better than maybe their neighbor did and end up owning their neighbor's property. Yeah, I, I said it's something we wrestle with all the time because it's, if you look back 20 years ago, even 10, 15 years ago in our own situation, we were forced to get bigger. Families sure. grew. The, uh, you you want to keep everybody within the family as much as involved as you can. And, no, uh, and really to run one of these ranches anymore and have more than you and your wife and maybe one hired man, you got to run quite a few. They have forced us to get bigger. 20 years ago, I'm not so sure we weren't making more money with less than we are, but they have forced us. Uh, we're just handling more money, and but they forced us to get bigger. And we've had the opportunity to uh, uh, vertically integrate. And, and uh, to be honest, we our family has chosen not to, and sure. mainly because we own these auction markets. It, it's so against what we were taught uh, growing up. Really, the folks that, that pay our bills. The folks that basically uh, butter our bread are the smaller producers. I mean, at these auction markets, we, we sell a lot of cattle for the big producers, but we sell all the cattle for the small producers. Uh, for these bulls that we sell and our seed stock operations, sure, we sell some bulls to some big operations, but we sell the bulk of our bulls to these small family operations. And th those are the ones that we want to cater to. Those are the ones that we want to go to bat for and fight for. And Sure, there's some of these bigger operations, but really, uh, if we continue to lose these these 20 head cow herds to 500 head cow herds, even up to 1,000 head cow herds, those are family, generational type situations. And those are the people that, that butter your bread, they butter ours. They, they keep the uh, auction markets in business. They keep the Ace Hardware in business. They keep the American Angus Association, American Hereford Association in business. And if we continue to, to lose these folks, and continue to cater to uh, uh, this idea of vertical integration, the big getting bigger. I don't think you're going to stop that altogether. And, and I don't think you should. Like you say, uh, uh, capitalism, free enterprise, uh, the American way. I mean, we don't need to stop that. But we sure we sure don't need to, to, to get in a situation where these people have these ranches and they can't keep them generational. And I think that's something that we're losing in this country, uh, not just at the egg level all over, but we're really seeing, uh, seeing uh, uh, the family-run outfits go by the wayside. And, and I think it's something, uh, at least we as auction market owners, where we, we have the great, uh, one thing about being an auction market owner we deal with all producers. I mean, we deal with the the big ones, the small ones. We be, we deal with producers that belong to these different trade orga and, and industry organizations. But we also deal with just about all of them that don't belong to any organization. And right. uh, we hear their concerns and uh, we're losing. And uh, we're seeing it firsthand every week. It's sitting around one of these auctions. And uh, uh, we just f feel the real need to try to unify this industry. Are we, are we wanting to become an, a membership organization? No, 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 not at all. 
but we do have the right to talk to these members of these different organizations because they pay our bills and uh, we need them around. Yeah, you asked me earlier for my feedback about the meeting that I got to go to that LMA put on there in, in Emporia. And um, I got to take two of my kids, my second and third children with me that evening. They're teenagers and they went along and they were the youngest in the room, but Mark and Chelsea welcomed them and everybody else did as well. And coming home with them, the discussion that we had after them hearing the discussion that was held at that LMA meeting was one of the better, deeper, more philosophical discussions I've ever had with my kids because of that. It was a great meeting, Joe. It was a hard meeting because obviously there were different perspectives. There were different ideas. There was nothing, you know, it was one of those, we don't have very many think tanks in the beef industry. If we do, it's at midnight to 1 a.m. and nobody's keeping notes. Uh, yeah. but this was one of those think tank type of meetings and, um, and luckily Chelsea was keeping really good notes and we heard heartfelt, passionate stories and reasons as to why something needed to change and nobody necessarily agreed on anything, but they all brought something up and there wasn't, there wasn't one fight. There wasn't one, no, we can't do that. But it was, it was truly one of the better industry meetings I've been to. And I think the reason was, was just as you said, um, there weren't a lot of agendas. I think that you all as an LMA board thought going into it, you might hear support for this or that idea or opposition to something else and looking at some of the the feedback that you got at, at several different regions, they were all a little different, right? Um, but I don't know that there came, that, that anything came out of there that said, yeah, by all means, this is the path that we go down, but it's going to take more of those meetings. It's going to take more of that. And I think, I agree with you that you have every right, maybe some would even say to your membership, every responsibility to ask those types of questions because you said it. And that's why I was at the meeting, because those folks are my bread and butter. From a bull marketing standpoint and a production standpoint, from a class 2A high school, rural America that's trying to keep a school open and a community mm -hmm. hospital open and all these services, it's not just the bottom line of Dale Banks Angus. It's whether Eureka, Kansas lives or dies. That's and, right. um, and so, yes, we have to address these things. I may come around to seeing that it has to involve the government and incentives, but I do think, I, I think that there are some negative consequences because quite often when Uncle Sam gets involved, the whole free market and capitalism and free enterprise and allowing those who want to work hard and work smart and market well and take the steps that they need to take to successfully produce a product, sometimes those aren't rewarded. I mean, all we have to do is look at the drought payments through the last 10 or 12 years. You know, my biggest gripe with those things are it rewards producers for overgrazing and for not responding and not thinking ahead and seeing something coming and selling down or 
thinning cows out of the area or whatever the case may be, you're incentivized to keep your same herd numbers, whether you're getting your normal rainfall or 30% of your normal rainfall. And those types of programs, I don't think, help us get better long-term. They may help us patch some things up when that check comes in because we didn't sell cows or we didn't, you know, take you know proactive measurements. But that's the challenge, I think, when we get the government in. I, I may, like I said, I may come around, but um, I, I hope we just, can come up with something even better. I do too. I I, uh, I really do because I don't want to get the government involved. I don't. I don't want any part of it. But I just don't know unless somebody can come up with something better. I, I just haven't heard. But I think the idea of just saying no way, we ain't gonna do it. It's just it's a stupid idea. Well, if it's a stupid idea and you're not gonna do it just for this and that and just walk away from it, that that that's not that that's not that's not helping. I. Yeah. Uh, 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 just real quick, because we've been on here quite a while, but I, I will share a story that, of the meeting we had in Billings, Montana, and we had a real diverse group. We had some very successful, very prominent ranchers there, as, along with some, some some younger people there that were, were struggling. And uh, we went around, uh, the, uh, there was 15 of us there, and we ran around the table and everybody kind of voiced their opinion as far as all these different ideas that, like you and I've been talking about here today. And uh, uh, the idea of, of some government intervention, the idea of, of getting on an equal playing field for some of this ground and this and that. There were some of these real prominent, very conservative uh, uh, ranchers that were there that were just totally against it. Like you and I would have been the first time we heard it. Just absolutely, we do not want the government involved. And we, we went through this for about two hours. And finally, this young lady was sitting over there, her and her husband, and they had a young family and uh, uh, they leased with the option to buy their folks's place. And, and uh, she hadn't said one word in two hours. And I finally, I, I asked her, I said, you know, you haven't said anything. What do you think of this idea of, of, of creating some equality or, or some fairness, uh, uh, trying to uh, compete for this ground? And she says, you know, I'm just, and I think of it and it just gave me goosebumps because she was so sincere and so humble. And she says, you know, Mr. Goggins said, there's a lot of people here that, uh, uh, at this table that are very prominent, that are basically mentors to uh, uh, my husband and I. We, we so look up to all of you folks. But she said, I know a lot of you are against some of these ideas, but I am telling you fr from my husband and I standpoint, this would really help. She says, we're poor. And she said it just like that. So humble, so sincere. We're poor. This would really help us. We both have college educations. We both could have went and done something else, but we chose to, to come back to rural America, to come back to production agriculture. We thought it was a great place, and it is a great place to raise our family and our kids, but we're struggling. And there's some ideas that you've brought up here today that some of you are very, very against that I, I'll be honest would really, really help uh, my husband and I. And if we all, uh, if you'd have raised your hand, had the room raise their hand, or if they were for or against something like this, before she said that, I would have said 75% of that room would have raised their hand. We don't want it. We asked the question, who in this room would be for some form of at least a conversation about getting equal, a fair playing field uh, uh, for those of us to compete for this land? 100% of the people put their hand up. And I just think... Uh, we don't live in a, uh, the world's not fair and it's not equal. And some of the things we're going to do are going to have some probably bad consequences. But if we do nothing, I, I just think we have to have this conversation. We have to come together and, and uh, 
I mean, the one thing, and I've, I, I told you this when we talked last that uh, about the industry roundtable meeting we had, and 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 there's so much divisiveness within this industry. Here we go. I mean, uh, whether I mean, there's there's some of these groups that hate each other. And, but when you, uh, when you get in a room like we did back in Phoenix a few years ago and at that industry group, and you start having the same kind of conversations that we're having right now, when, when you really see our wants, I don't care which organization you're, you're affiliated with, our differences are very, very small. We basically all want the same thing. And uh, it's how we get there is, is uh, how we go about it. But we as an industry have got to, to, to quit throwing rocks at each other on some of these things. We have got to come together. And I, I, for that matter, we as, an in, uh, as, a, as a country, I mean, we've mm-hmm. become so divisive through politics, through everything we got going on, school boards. It doesn't matter. There's, there's, uh, we've got to unify. Uh, I guess that's what we as auction market owners are so, we just want to start a conversation. We just want are these exactly the issues we got? Is this one pager exactly what needs to be done? Probably not. But when you go to these meetings, uh, you need a template. You need a starting spot. And, and we really believe that we put in the due diligence with these focus groups to at least, we got a template. We got some issues that I think we can agree upon and not waste a whole bunch of time when you get to a meeting trying to figure it out. And, uh, I really do believe uh, I, I give our staff at the LMA and 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 our our organization big kudos for for uh, uh, we we did the due diligence we we went through the effort the time the expense uh, to try to get some some real data some real information that we, the we think we as an industry can unify around do we want to carry the ball to the finish line absolutely not. I think that belongs to these membership organizations, these grassroots uh, organizations. And, uh, uh, but somebody's got to start the conversation. And to me, I'm not sure there's a better organization in the country right now uh, to start that conversation than a bunch of auction market owners because we, we deal with them all. We, we, we deal with them on a, we have, we have personal uh, relationships with a lot of these members and they all belong to different organizational groups. And, Hopefully we can start the conversation. Hopefully we can get some movement at these state affiliate levels to create some policy at these different national levels to where maybe this can be moved up to their number one priority instead of most of, most of these different organizations have number one priorities are very divisive, are, are things that we as an industry are not going to unify around. I, 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 I just think of this whole thing is over the last 70 years, the beef industry, especially, has been forced to play defense, and we're pretty good at playing defense. Well, I mean, we are We've forced had to, be. to play defense. We've had to play defense. Right. Well, well it's high time right now, folks. We got to put the ball in the hole. We got to score a goal. We got to we got to score a touchdown. We got to put some points on the board. We had better get to playing some offense. And uh, I think these are some some uh, the conversation topics we've kind of brought up as an organization, the LMA. I think these are some things we can rally around as an industry and play some offense. Let, let's go for a score. Well, I agree. And, and the irony of it all, and not to cast blame anywhere, because there's not just one person or even one entity, but there were a lot of things. I, I graduated college in 1996. There were a lot of things happening in 1996, and it was an ugly, ugly time from a beef market standpoint. I mean, fed cattle were around 60 
two to five cents. Calves were even worth less. And I've told this story many a time. Young guys that have got less gray around their ears than I do uh, cannot imagine any time that that would have happened, but it was. And we saw the merging of a couple organizations and we saw a couple new packing companies either come about or change hands. We saw value-based marketing come into play. We saw a lot of things that were very proactive and were probably most, at least on that team, would have said were them, us, the beef industry playing offense. And yet they created so much animosity and you would have had a front row seat for a lot of it that that's when we fractured this industry and ended up having three different organizations for folks to try to decide if they're going to belong, who are they going to be with and who are they going to belong to? And I mean, it's, it's fascinating, if not disheartening that you and I, who probably would have been on opposite sides of a lot of those debates in the mid and late nineties are back here saying, folks, we got to come together. We can't every time we have, and it's usually a marketing issue, maybe a checkoff issue, but it's usually a marketing issue that fractures us. We've got so many issues that we agree upon. And, um, you know, the state organization that I belong to, Kansas Livestock Association, their mission statement is to advance members' common business interests and enhance their ability to meet consumer demand. Members' common business interests. And that's basically what you're saying. Let's right. find the things that we agree on because 90-some percent of the issues that face U.S. ranchers today, I think most of us are going to say, yeah, this is, the, this is where we need to be on that. Yeah. It's those five or 10 or two or whatever percent of the issues that we go, no, 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 no. We don't want this person owning that or this person being able to do whatever on the marketing side. So yeah, long way of saying that there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, here we are 30 years later talking about, we got to come together and we've got to find a path forward. And um, frankly, I, I think what I'm hearing from you is we don't necessarily feel like it needs to be LMA's ball to carry, but we're at least going to put it in play and I, I let's think figure read, out how to win the game. Yeah. You, you read it perfectly. I, I, uh, it's not for LMA to take it to the finish line. W will we help do it? You darn right. We will. But I do think it, uh, we feel strongly enough about it as auction market owners that we somehow, some way, somebody has got to go to bat for these, they, these grassroots cow-calf people, these people that run yearlings, these people that sell grass. And, and uh, you talk to, I mean, we talk to consigners every week. That, I mean, they don't call just because they want to know when the best time to sell their calves or best time to sell their cows or best time to sell their yearlings, whatever it might be. Heck, we got a lot of people call up and say, what do you think about this fertilizer? Or what do you, when do, what do you think hay is going to cost this year? I mean, I mean, they become, they're, they're part of your family. They, uh, they, these people, we got real, real close, intimate, close relationships with these uh, different consigners. And then they mean something to us and, and uh, we're losing them. And uh, I just look back at, at uh, 20, 25 years ago, when you look at the, the 800 and some member marketing business we have within the LMA. Uh, I would say a high percentage of those uh, businesses 20, 25 years ago sold uh, hogs. 
on a consistent and regular basis. Today, today, very, very few, very few. And that's what we're concerned about. It, uh, if we don't do have some pushback, if we don't, if we don't create some uh, real incentive for these people to leave their land in livestock production, whether it be lamb or beef, if we don't, if we don't incentivize these young people into wanting to be able to do this and make a decent living at it, we're going to continue to lose them. And in 20 years, maybe 10 years from now, instead of 800 and some member markets, maybe we have three to 500, maybe we have 400, but we're going to have a lot less of us. And that's what, when you look at these rural American towns, what makes up a small rural community, the school, the auction market, that, that's it. You lose these auction markets out of these, uh, you lose these, the, the, the truest form of price discovery there is in the world. You lose that out of these rural American communities, you lose that community. And that's what we're fighting for. And uh, it's not just for us. It, it, it's for the community. It, it's for this industry. But we as an industry, we as grassroots people, we can't expect somebody to go do this for us. They're not gonna. They're just not. We have got to get proactive. We've got to make ourselves go to our different industry state affiliate group meetings and force them to make some policy to go to their national levels and, and make this number one. Make the, at the national level, let's make it number one that we got to create some incentive on a consistent basis uh, for people to want to do this. How do we do that? That's what we go to these meetings for and create. But I think it has something to do with tax incentives. I think it has something to do with getting us on a fair and equal playing field uh, to compete for this land. Uh, I don't think it's too much to ask, but we've got to go do it ourselves. Well, and I know there's lots of different types of tax incentives, and I am no expert on any of them. But I've heard you talk briefly, and you mentioned it here, about tax credits. And the thing I like about tax credits is that you have had to make some income. You've had to do things right enough that you at least have taxable income. It's not just a government handout for doing nothing or doing it poorly, or not keeping up with the times and being progressive and all these things that we really need to do to let the market work. And maybe that's, maybe that's as simple as that. We figure out places that you can have a credit toward what taxes you were going to pay anyway. And so it still encourages you to be as profitable as you can and make as efficient of smart decisions as you can and and, uh, be rewarded that way. So I know we're not going to come up with the silver bullet here, but I do. I commend LMA because we have used some sports analogies here on this podcast. And clearly the Goggins family watches a little sports and plays a few sports. I would hate to know how many kids, nieces, in-laws you have that have played college sports. Uh, Do do you know? Do you have a count? Oh, it'd be... You'd need fingers and toes, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's there's probably eight or ten of them that have played college ball. And, so uh, you know your way around the basketball court or the volleyball floor or the football field. Um, maybe LMA isn't trying to be the quarterback. Maybe they're just trying to be the ref and make sure that the teams that are on the field have the most opportunities to win, and um, instead of just trying to start a fight every time we snap the ball. Yeah, I've never heard that analogy, but I think you are exactly right in that analogy. That is, I mean, we've tried to stay neutral, and I think we as an organization, we as auction market owners, 
over the years have learned that we've got to stay neutral. I mean, we, we deal with people that uh, are on all sides of a bunch of these different issues, but we, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we have uh, decided as, uh, as an organization that, that this is something that's meaningful. This is something that we're going to draw a line in the sand and say, we're going to, we're going to move forward. We're going to try to start this conversation. We're going to try to unify this industry and try to get uh, these producers uh, proactive enough to where they'll go to some of these uh, state affiliate meetings and uh, create some policy that we can carry forward and get some policy at the national level at these different respective uh, groups. And maybe we can go to uh, the senators and representative offices in D.C. with one message or two messages with one ask. And uh, you look at the things that we have rallied around in the last few years uh, uh, that have been so, so productive is uh, you look at our transportation law, the ELD law. Is it perfect? No, but it's, uh, this industry rallied around it, but it's so much better than what we would have got. You look at the dealer trust and, uh, uh, this industry rallied around that idea for the protection of these uh, producers. I just think it's, this is a case that, that we need to rally around that. And in my mind, we do it not only for rural America, but if we don't, we, we stand a real chance of losing our food independence in this country. And that, that, that scares me. Yep. Well, I. I commend you for it. Anytime the industry can have a good discussion on meaningful issues, regardless of whether we find that silver bullet or not, I think it's a win. I think it improves our perspective. I think it improves our our passion and dedication to the industry and doing the right thing. And, and I commend you all for it. And I, I hope that we as an industry can come up with some real solutions going forth. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I so appreciate you having me on today and I really consider you one of the good thinkers in this industry, in this business, and it's a pleasure to be part of this. And hopefully we can continue to spread the word. Hopefully we can continue to create a conversation. I mean, that's all we're trying to do right now is just create this conversation to move forward. Well, good. And I appreciate you being here. And, and that means a lot coming from you, Joe, and keep up the good work. You bet. Yeah. It, we've had some moisture up here. It's coming south, they tell me. So get ready. Get good. All right. to, to, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to Practically Ranching, brought to you by Dale Banks Angus. Weight, efficiency, gain, marbling, yield. The industry always wants more, but those extra few pounds or percents often come with increases in labor, feed, and other inputs. For decades, our family has focused on optimal animal performance with labor-saving foundation traits like foot soundness, fertility, longevity, sound udders, and docility. Now, this system's approach to genetic selection may not produce the bull with the most of a given trait or EPD, but we think it results in hundreds that find that sweet spot between sensible inputs and optimal outputs. We'll sell 150 yearling and coming two-year-old bulls at our annual Practical Profitable Genetics Bull Sale, Saturday, November 18th. The bulls will be freeze-branded, fertility tested, vaccinated, poured, and ready for immediate turnout. We're excited to have some new sire groups by balanced trait sires such as Tehama Patriarch, Yawn Top Cut, HF Safe and Sound, and Sits Resilient. Plus, we'll have the time-tested sire groups by Deer Valley Growth Fund, Keneally Cool, and other bulls that you've seen in our program. Bull sale catalogs will be available in late October. Just contact us at dalebanks.com to request yours. 
Videos will be out on the bulls in mid-November. The bulls will be walked through the sale ring for live bidding on November 18th, or you can register on cci.live to bid online. Thanks for your interest. We hope to see you at the sale.